It's time for Oddments. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This week, we check in with the rabbits of Watership Down, a catastrophic event that played a role in creating a major religion, the mystery of Thomas James, and a unique dictionary. What's the theme? See if you can find it. and his children, and his children's children, come out of their holes and feed and play in his sight. For they are his friends. When Richard Adams began telling short bunny tales to his children on long car trips, he never imagined that he was in the process of writing one of the most beloved books of the 20th century, Watership Down. If you haven't read it, the short summary is that it's the tale of a group of rabbits who, sensing impending doom, leave their home for a safer place on a high, windswept hill. They encounter many dangers along the way, including the expected dogs, cats, foxes, and the like, as well as humans. But it turns out that the most dangerous animal they encounter is actually a rabbit like them. The book is notable for its Tolkien-esque use of an ersatz language, Lapine, which the rabbits use freely amongst themselves. There is a glossary to help the reader decipher such terms as tharn and hraka, but Adams did a marvelous job of choosing words that sound like what they mean. The book received a warm welcome in the 70s and spawned many reprints, a feature movie that was perhaps a bit too violent for children, a radio series, a role-playing game, theater productions, and later on, a sequel novel and a TV series. But all has not gone well for our band of rabbits over the years. The first attacks came from feminists such as Selma G. Lanes, who pointed out, correctly, that the novel portrays female rabbits as little more than baby factories. Indeed, a large part of the plot is a quest to get more females. It's also pointed out that this is especially damning as real rabbits are matriarchal, and it would be much more likely that a band of female rabbits would be the ones heading out looking for a new home. Adams drew his knowledge of rabbits from a book called The Private Life of Rabbits, so he knew this was the case, and still he chose to have his rabbits be male. The places in the book are real, and though Watership Down is never mentioned by name in the story, people have been able to find it on maps. And for many summers, after the thrills of Easter bunnies turned into the chore of full-grown rabbits, dozens of hazels and bigwigs were set free on the land. Soon it became overrun with rabbits, creating health problems not only for the rabbits, but for the ecology of the entire area. When Adams was contacted and asked how he felt about this, he indicated that he was in favor of euthanizing the rabbits and asked people to stop thinking that his novel was any more than a story. The problem of rabbit overpopulation may be permanently solved, at least on Watership Down, as our rabbit hero's homeland is slated to be turned into thousands of homes, just as depicted in the first part of the novel. You can see on Google Maps how new roads have been drawn in, though the Google Earth imagery doesn't seem to have caught up with the plans. Developers cite the increasing population of the area, but Richard Adams, now 94, strongly opposes the plan. He says once these places are built over, they are lost forever. He has joined a local group to oppose the construction, and the issue is still being debated today. With the book's reputation sullied and the real places described therein on the verge of destruction, what are we to do? I suggest that we continue to enjoy the book and understand that it's a product of its time. 
The rabbits of Watership Down and thousands like them will be fine in the landscape that every reader creates for them. You've probably never heard of Sumbawa, Indonesia, but events there in the year 1815 helped create one of the world's fastest growing religions. Sumbawa was the home of an industrious people known for their honey, horses, and horticulture. It was crowned by Mount Tambora, a dormant volcano. On April 5, 1815, residents heard gunfire, though they couldn't determine the source. Ships at sea thought they were hearing distress calls and fruitlessly searched the horizon for a stricken vessel. On April 6th, the explosions continued as the rain turned to ash. At this point, the gunfire was recognized for what it was. The mountain was erupting. Over the course of the next few weeks, the volcano killed 11,000 people, either from the eruption or the resulting tidal waves. The force of the explosion was estimated to be four times the power of Krakatoa. Put another way, it contained the explosive power of 52,000 Hiroshimas. Nearly all life on Sumbawa was snuffed out. Sumbawa is far away from Europe, but the impact even there was devastating. Ejecta amounted to 100 cubic kilometers, and that which ended up in the atmosphere blocked the sun, which was already having a period of lowered radiation. Temperatures fell and crops failed. Estimates are as high as 90,000 deaths from famine and resultant disease throughout the summer of the following year, 1816. On June 2nd, 1816, 10 inches of snow fell in New England. Frost continued as late as July 8th. With the end of the Napoleonic Wars and the first crop failures in Ireland, a mass emigration of over 20,000 Irish made their way to North America in 1815 to 1816. We understand pretty clearly what happened to the weather now. At the time, no one knew why things were so awful. Could this be the devil's work? A sign of the second coming? People turned to religion and revivals grew in popularity. The mass influx of Catholics to largely Protestant New England pushed some of the faithful farther west in the hopes of better crops and better communion. One young teenager moved with his family from Sharon, Vermont to upstate New York, a place under the influence of the Second Great Awakening, an anti-reason Christian revivalist movement. As the boy grew to a man in this environment, he began to see visions, and in one of these, an angel directed him to a buried set of golden plates. Years later, these would be translated into the Book of Mormon. You can be a Mormon, a Mormon it's impossible to say if Joseph Smith would have founded the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints without an Indonesian volcano, but the events line up nicely. The haunting occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge is not the only influential work by Ambrose Bierce. 
Among his other works is the sardonic Devil's Dictionary, which was originally published in small segments in a newspaper column. First called the Cynic's Dictionary by the publishers, who were afraid to upset religious sensibilities, the Devil's Dictionary doesn't define words so much as society in the Gilded Age. Though meant in humor, it is certainly educational. For example, we have the definition of saint, a dead sinner revised and edited. Of happiness, Beer says, an agreeable sensation arising from contemplating the misery of another. And reporter, a writer who guesses his way to the truth and dimples it with a tempest of words. It doesn't take long at all to find racism, sexism, and general misanthropy in the Devil's Dictionary, and that's rather the point. Bierce expressed the view that humanity was something of a farce, perhaps in a darker way than Mark Twain had. Like Twain, Bierce was a reporter, and at the age of 71, he ventured to the American Southwest at a time when Zapata was flexing his might. And then, we don't know what happened to him. He sent a letter explaining that he was traveling with Zapata's troops, and it's assumed that he was captured and executed, though there is no official record bearing his name. Eerily, or perhaps intentionally, his second-to-last known letter to his niece mentions that such a fate would be a good way to depart his life. He also said, To be a gringo in Mexico, ah, that is euthanasia. Where is he? He is most certainly in the Devil's Dictionary most of all. As to where his body lies, rest assured, as he was, that it fulfilled its destiny as worm food. And that wraps up this week's oddments. Did you catch the theme? It was books that were never meant to be. In each of these examples, books weren't planned but came about due to external influences. And if you're not sure the origin of the Mormons fits in with that, consider that that same summer saw the birth of Frankenstein, originally a campfire ghost story, and The Vampire, the first novel formalizing the vampire mythos. Thanks for listening, and until next time, remember, the odds are good.